Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Dr. Tiffany Love is a Chief Operating Officer, an award-winning board-certified healthcare executive, fellow and former region of the American College of Healthcare Executives with over 26 years of healthcare experience. Love is recognized nationally and internationally as a leader in the advancement of women in the diverse healthcare executives. She's a chairwoman of the Board of Directors for the Healthcare Diversity Council and serves as a national keynote speaker and faculty for many prestigious organizations. She serves as coordinator, nurse planner, and guest faculty for the Harvard Medical School CME on career advancement, leadership skills for women in healthcare and faculty, judge and pitch coach for the writing, publishing, and social media for healthcare professionals. Dr. Love also serves as consultants, providing executive consultation to many national organizations, including the Academy Health Delivery System Science Fellowship Advisory Committee, the National Institute of Healthcare for Translation Research and Implementation Science, and Executive Diversity Career Navigator. With a passion for creating inclusive environments and healthcare researchers, executives, and the healthcare workforce, Dr. Love has truly dedicated her career to promote, protect, and advance health equity in an inclusive environment for all. That was a mouthful. You've done a lot and are involved in a lot. Tiffany, welcome to the Second in Command podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, so we connected via Instagram, and there was something that just jumped out over a post that you were mentioned in or that you had done. I don't remember which it was, and then I noticed that you were second in command, and I reached out, and you're the second in command for a hospital or a group. Can you walk us through what that is and how you got involved in that? Yes. So I actually, this is a very unique hospital, Humboldt General Hospital is a critical access hospital. So it only has 25 beds and it's in Winnemucca, Nevada. Now it also has a 40 bed skilled nursing facility, but really what really attracted me to this role is that they have emergency medical services that cover a 10,000 mile radius. So I'm talking about flight nurses, EMTs who are trained in rope rescue, car extrication, all of these like amazingly wonderful things. And I mean, they cross state lines doing this work. And so that was one of the things that really attracted me to this role. Yeah, it's interesting. We have a hospital. I'm in in Vancouver, Canada right now. We have a hospital in Whistler that would be about the same size. And when you say 25 beds, it sounds small, but then I've been in there a number of times with broken bones and you realize how complex it is with ambulances coming in and people being helicoptered off the side of the mountain. And that place is busy. Absolutely, especially this time of year because people like to do the four-wheelers and they're out in the desert doing all these stunts. And then, of course, the thing flips over and they're they're injured. And with COVID and people being uh, locked up for so long, they're even more adventurous. And so the injuries are more severe. So it's been a really busy summer for us. All right. Now, tell us how you got involved in the role of the COO there because it didn't actually start out that way. It did not. So I was working in uh, Maine as the regional chief nursing officer over two hospitals for Maine Health. And I I loved Maine, but I did not want to stay another winter there. It was just too too isolated for me. 
So I started to look around and I noticed this opportunity in Nevada. And what really intrigued me was that the CNO had the opportunity to serve as the CEO. So I said, okay, I, I would like to try that role. Maybe I'll get a chance to serve in that capacity. And during a series of interviews, I was made aware that the COO role was available and this would be the first permanent COO. And so I expressed interest in it. And then the interim decided he was gonna stay. And by the time I interviewed for the job, he had decided he was leaving again. And so I said, well, what do I do? Do I interview for the CNO or the COO role? And he said, CNO, CNO. Well, when they offered me the job, they offered me the COO role. And here I am. Interesting. Now I'm sitting talking to you over video and you've got a picture of a baby behind you. Is that yours? <laughs> no. Is that that's my niece? Okay. <laughs> I was like, wow, she's you... a full toddler now. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm sitting looking at this little baby picture behind you. I'm like, oh my gosh, and you've also got an infant. That's crazy. You're out of your mind. All my right. daughter is 26 years old. She's in Boston. So, right. Well, you, you do look young enough to have the one behind you, but that, that well, makes a little you. more sense as to why you can actually do the job you're in then. Yeah. All right, so then you moved pretty much sight unseen from Maine to Nevada, came in as the COO from the group. What's the COO oversee? What, what's kind of within your-, um, your Oh group? my gosh. So I have a total of 14 services. I have the pharmacy, information technology, diagnostics, laboratory, respiratory, cardiac rehab, physical therapy, speech, occupational therapy, plant operations, nutrition and food service, wellness, and security. Holy crap. How many, how many people within the, the hospital? So this hospital has about 330 employees, and I would say I supervise at least half of them. So there's some perspective right away, right? 25 beds sounds small, 330 is like, holy shit, there's a company there. Absolutely. And then what I didn't tell you is that when I first came into this role, we did not have the COO was also serving as the director of HR. And it's like, oh, by the way, until we hire someone, you also have to serve as the director of HR. And I thought, all right, well, my experience from the Department of Veterans Affairs, I had to work a lot with unions. And so I learned labor laws and I felt comfortable serving as the interim director of HR and boy, did they keep me busy for the first 30 to 60 days. How so? Well, there were so many, so many unexpected uh, investigations. And unfortunately, I had to do a number of terminations. And it was just, I had to hit the ground running as soon as I got here. You actually seem like a people person in, in that I, th I think you actually really care. I mean, I guess it, in, in your bio, it talks about diversity and inclusion, but you actually seem like a very caring, empathetic person. Is that one of the reasons you've done well in your career? I would say so, because I honestly believe that in any leadership role, it's your ability to develop relationships that really makes you successful. Mm. And when I'm working with my leaders, one of the first things that I do when I meet with them, I'll meet with them one-on-one, -on -one and I just want to learn about who they are as a person, about their family. Uh, I don't like to get into the nuts and bolts of their work until after I've given them the opportunity to tell me who they are as a person. Mm. And I feel that having that initial step really creates a sound relationship for the future. Have you ever read a book called The Dream Manager? I have not. The Dream Manager takes what you're talking about to the next level, which is, is almost even after you get to know them as a person, it's really deeply caring about their fears, their insecurities, their goals, their passions, so that if we can help them make their dreams happen, 
they'll take care of the company for us. Absolutely. You'll love it. It's a great read. How, how does the, the, now is the hospital that you're running a private hospital? Is it a uh, for-profit? It is a district hospital. So right. this is very interesting. It, we receive tax, tax dollars from the county. Mm-hmm. We have a publicly elected board of trustees. So can you imagine working with a publicly elected board? No. It's, it's very interesting. I think my experience in the federal government prepared me for this role because it's very political. So you have to report to a board, stay within a budget guideline then, and then run it as a business underneath that. Absolutely. But we are fortunate that if for some reason we have a financial shortfall, the tax dollars from the mining usually are enough to kind of keep us, you know, give us a safe cushion. Mm-hmm. Okay. Which is a nice, nice to have that buffer. Now you said that when we were just getting started that you actually came into this role a few months before COVID hit. Yes. Oh my goodness. So I started here in January and I'm telling you my days were 12 to 14 hour days to begin with. And then all of a sudden we started to hear, you know, that there were some concerns about China having these pneumonias. And before you knew it, we were told that we were experiencing COVID-19. First it was an epidemic and now we're dealing with a worldwide pandemic. And I can remember it it definitely felt like standing in front of a tidal wave and just waiting for it to hit and, Mm. you know, trying to prepare as best as you can, but it's literally preparing for the unknown. And so as I can remember, I would come to work every morning and I would pull up John Hopkins website to see the increasing number of cases and to see all those red blobs on the map and to watch them get closer and closer to us until we had our first confirmed case. And I literally hit a wall because as I mentioned before, I was so busy with the day-to-day operations and just trying to build structure for my organization. And then all of a sudden you had to plan for a pandemic and we had to set up a field hospital and the Winnemucca Event Center that fortunately we didn't have to use. But, and and fortunately, we have a field hospital that we can set up, right? Most hospitals don't have that. And so really standing up incident command and working closely with the county emergency manager and, you know, having these day-to-day operations meetings with the county officials to determine, are we ready for COVID? Uh, Preparing the hospital, creating a specific area within the hospital where we could house COVID patients away from our other patients. It was truly intense, making sure that we had enough PPE. And I will tell you, it was truly amazing the amount of scams that would go on with people trying to sell us PPE, like wanting us to purchase a million masks for like a quarter of a million dollars, you know, just insane. But, you know, we were all out there desperately trying to get as much PPE stockpiled because we knew there was a risk of running out. And who wants to tell your staff that, I'm sorry, I don't have a mask for you, or I'm sorry, you know, I can't provide you with the protection you need to take care of these patients. This is just a weird side question, but how much waste do you think there is now in the system? Do you think we overpurchased across the board or or are hospitals running with pretty reasonable amounts? I think we're running with pretty reasonable amounts because we're already getting that the second hit. The next wave, the yeah. Wave. Well, yeah. They, they say this is still really the first wave, right? And so, I mean, we really are 
uh, the burn rate. We have uh, PPE burn rate calculators. And I mean, you go through PPE very quickly when you sure. think about having a staff 24 hours, what you, you try to limit the number of people that go into the room. But yeah. then the equipment that's required, the PAPRs, yeah. you know, those are expensive. Those filters are only good for like 16 hours. Yeah. And you're going, they're going out the door fast. So exactly. I'm curious, was, um, with coming in and really kind of getting your feet wet and getting to know the organization and then having to switch very quickly, almost into a wartime CEO where we just got to get shit done fast. Right. Do you think that helped you actually? Do you think that helped you get, you know, the command and control and, and all of a sudden be the leader because now people just like, Oh shit, we got to just get this done. Exactly. And you know what? I would say that my time in the federal government helps me really focus on processes and creating structure and that's how I was able to jump in and just get things done. I would say definitely I'm one of those leaders who you, you give me an assignment and I'm probably already giving myself a second assignment to match that assignment to make sure that it's completely done. You know, just I, I had been in situations before where I felt like I had to uh, go through the disaster drill. So I was very comfortable with, you know, it's showtime. You just got to get in there and perform. Interesting that you've said now a couple of times the stuff that you learned in government. And I, I don't think I've ever heard people talk about government that way that you like, I've heard the opposite. That I couldn't, couldn't wait to get out or I'm glad I got out or, oh my God, I would never go back. What did you learn in some of your roles in federal government? And how do you think that has helped you then? So I, as I was preparing for this podcast, I thought to myself that my first second in command job was in the federal government as the deputy associate director for patient care services. Mm. in Shreveport, Louisiana. So that's like a deputy chief nursing officer. Okay. And so really stepping into that role, being responsible for over 500 FTE, that literally trained me and prepared me for this role. Got it. All right. You've lived all over the place too. I have. So let me just say that I never planned to go into management. I you know, started my career. Well, I've been working in hospitals since I was 15 years old. I started out in dietary, became a nurse assistant, went to school to become a nurse. And I never really planned to go on to be a nurse practitioner, heard about a scholarship, applied for it, got it and said, well, uh, I guess I'm going to school to be a nurse practitioner. And then while I was in school, they tried to convince me to get my doctoral degree. And I thought, oh, no, I always say you can't talk to a lady about having a baby when she's in labor. I wanted to get out of there. I wanted to be done with it. And then a year later, I ran into someone and they said, why don't you do your doctorate? It's easy. And I said, OK, went back to school. That was not true. It's not easy. <laughs> but as I was finishing up that role, I was looking for a job where I could do research and clinical. And that's when I looked at the Department of Veterans Affairs. And I ended up in a population management type role, which was not exactly what I wanted, but that was my introduction to management. And I learned that you could rise through the ranks more quickly if you're willing to relocate. Mm. So I started out in Hudson Valley, New York. I've lived in Muskogee, Oklahoma, Shreveport, Louisiana. As a, when I served in my deputy role, I had two detail assignments in Washington, D.C., which was very exciting and also terrifying, and also an assignment in Philadelphia. Interesting. Wow, you've lived all over. That's amazing. I love that you actually did your doctorate as well. What did you do your doctorate in? So I did my doctorate in healthcare research, and I looked at how African-Americans experience heart disease. I did a hermeneutic phenomenological study. 
Okay. So <laughs> can you give us any insight into why we're hearing kind of some of the narrative right now, African-Americans having a higher incidence of COVID? Is there any, is that, do you think it is genetic or is it more economic or? I would say definitely more economic. So of course we we've talked about this a little bit in the media, but unfortunately we have a healthcare system that has structural racism, right? Sure, sure. So uh, you can look at the New England Journal of Medicine. They published a lot of articles recently showing how in a, in a big city like Chicago, if you look at those urban hospitals where you have a high population of minorities, those are the hospitals that don't have as much funding. So they probably don't get the ventilators. They probably don't have the specialists that are needed to provide that expert care. And so that's one of the reasons. And then also we know that there are people of color tend to work in essential jobs, whether it's working as a registered nurse or a nurse yeah. assistant or, you know, um, some other kind of environmental services even. Yeah. And so there are so many, it's multifactorial, but certainly, you know, it's apparent that yes, um, African Americans are disproportionately affected and we do need to, to work on that. Yeah, at least it's not a genetic thing. That was when I first heard it that I was hopeful it wasn't because I'd heard years ago, um, my grandfather owned a company that, that employed a lot of, we call them First Nations or Native Americans in, in uh, Canada. And they had a predisposition towards alcoholism. Um, yeah. And I didn't know whether that was a genetic thing or whether it was just, you know, on the reserve, they were just sitting drinking. And right. But he, he was just very aware of it back before there really was a narrative because all of his employees were Native American. Um, mm -hmm. so, so talk a little bit about, about the hospital and, and running it like a business. How, how does it operate like a business? And, and how does it operate completely different from a business? Well, so the best example that I can give you is that we just had an electronic health record conversion. And so, you know, of course, our number one goal is to be here to care for the community. But at the same time, you can't operate at a loss or you won't survive very long. Mm. Well, when we converted to this electronic health medical record, a hospital that was doing financially well, all of a sudden went from $8 million per month revenue down to like $3 million per oh, month. Oh shit, sure, because you lose all that. Right, the charges aren't built in the system correctly. And so the first six, and of course, so I come in at a pandemic and during an electronic health re record <laughs> conversion, that's got to be like the worst combination of things. And so we're constantly trying to identify charges that haven't been built so right. that we can go back and bill for services that have already been rendered. And so to this, I, I actually just got an email this morning about how, you know, uh, we, we're providing pain management services and the charges still aren't built and we have 10 patients we're seeing today. So quickly that turns into thousands and hundreds of thousands of dollars just for that one service line, just for that one procedure that we're wow. missing. And having frontline leaders who are astute enough to identify where the charges are missing. It's interesting how that can be missed so quickly too, can't it? Yes. So you said something that I kind of I kind of glossed over it at first, and then I just remembered when you were going through some of the people issues, you said you had to do some investigations and there was some people that had to be terminated. Right. What was going on? Oh my gosh, so many things. So, well, one of the first terminations that I had to do, it was actually pretty easy. 
there was a, a gentleman who was sleeping on the job and he worked night shift and he was the most pleasant gentleman you'd ever want to meet. He's well rested. I, yeah, it's easy, it's easy to be easy to be pleasant when you're well rested. Yeah. Well, he just could not stay awake. And so, you know, when we had to term, this was the first time I've ever been involved in a termination where the person asked if he could hug the supervisor who was terminating <laughs> him. And he just realized that he just, the job was not for him. And I thought, boy, I, that was the most beautiful termination I had ever done. <laughs> I mean, he was a great guy, but he just was not fit for the job. And then, you know, um, also you have to deal with, uh, if, if ever there is a complaint of any type of harassment, we have to have a no tolerance policy for any type of harassment. So, you know, there were some issues along there along those lines that have come up where, you know, you have to be very quick, very timely in addressing it because if you don't address that complaint immediately, it could easily turn into a multi-million dollar loss. Okay. So this is interesting to me. So you, how, how many kids have you got? One. Okay. Shit. So you don't have this example. Um, so I've got two boys, 19 and 17. Yes. And there's always another side to the story. Oh, sure. Right. When the 19 year old comes and complains about the 17 year old, I'm like, get the 17 year old up here and hear, hear their side. Right. And then you realize right. like both sides are true. So how do you deal with the whole complaint before you act on the 19 year old's information? Like how, how do you get the rest of the story to know whether to act? Because otherwise there could be a lot of politics being brought in and Absolutely. So again, from the federal government, I learned how to do fact findings. Okay. You interview everyone who has knowledge of whatever events occurred. And so when you're interviewing multiple people, there begins to, there's a common thread that you start to see, especially if there's someone who truly is a harasser. Mm -hmm. That's a, that's a behavioral issue. That's a conduct issue. And it doesn't just stop with one person it is a pattern of behavior right so you so, so there is a little bit of smoke and then the fire right exactly you identify the pattern to the point where that person cannot dispute it because mm -hmm. there are too many accounts of people who have no nothing to gain from being honest about the situation sure interesting so you do do the fact finding okay yeah. and is there ever been any financial, you often hear in, in business financial fraud um, where, you know, someone in accounts receivable is or accounts payable is doing something or stealing petty cash. Does that happen in your industry at all or, or harder because it's electronic reddick or um, medical records, et cetera? So, yes, it does happen in healthcare. I actually... I have not experienced it myself, but I have a colleague who I value. I was taking a, I don't want to give away who it was, but I was, I was, I was taking a particular class and this person had gone into a hospital where they were asked to really work on um, staffing and improving, you know, how they're doing their staffing and help save money, basically, you know, whether you're understaffed or overstaffed, sure. it can cost you either way. And while she was there, she realized that their, the leadership team actually, they were getting paychecks for people who no longer work there, who had died. <laughs> it was just, 
incredible. And just she felt lucky to get out of there with her life because she realized the scandal was so deep. Jeez. So yeah, it happened. I, I used to love reading about those when I was a kid in the paper. I'm like, are you kidding? Like, how do they not find this stuff? It's incredible. What's the size of this city? I'm not even going to ask you to pronounce the name of the city you're in. You're in Northern Nevada somewhere. What's the size approximately population? So, yes, it's a little over 7,000 people. Okay. And it's less than 2% African-American and about 20% Hispanic. The rest is Caucasian. Now, the oh. reason I love this little town, this is the one place in the one place in the country where Google has decided that they can launch their loan balloons. You're kidding. Which are these beautiful, they almost look like hot air balloons, but they send up these, I think it's like a satellite that goes into yeah. space for like uh, when Puerto Rico had the hurricane, they would send the satellite over there so they could get internet access. And they're launching them from where you are? From Winnemucca. Yeah. And how often do you see them going up? I haven't seen one yet. I've only oh. seen pictures. Oh, no. Okay. Yes. I thought it was like a daily thing. I'm like, that's amazing. I got to go. No, I okay. wish I could see one. But they've offered, you know, if we ever had a situation where our internet went down and we needed their help. That let's they start one. And, let's yeah. just start. Let's start a reason to make it happen. I know, right? So how do you, how do you recruit great people from a, from a base that's so small? Or are you recruiting from Reno and from Vegas and they're, they're moving there? How are you grabbing them? I am recruiting from everywhere. So, oh, what is the way that I attract talent? So, of course, using recruitment firms. But honestly, I like to go on LinkedIn. Okay. I have had many people reach out to me on LinkedIn and recruit me from there. And when I'm looking for talent, of course, I rely on recruitment firms, but also word of mouth. I still, I still use that word of mouth. It's helpful if you know somebody who knows somebody who's interested. Um, how, do you sell, saying, how do you sell them on moving to a small town? This is like this is a big issue for lots and lots of companies that when they crack this code, they win because, and it doesn't even have to be to a, to a small city. It could be, you know, we we were years ago trying to recruit someone to move from Boston to Vancouver. Mm -hmm. um, and we had to sell the, the, the candidate's spouse on moving to the city. And then we had to right. sell somebody on moving to a rainy city and then moving to Canada from the U.S. Like there's all these. How, how do you sell them on moving to a small town? Well, number one, I would say if I could just get them here to see it mm. because we've got lots of fun toys. You know, that's one of the things I love about this place is the emergency medical services we provide. And usually if I can get them here, it's a beautiful hospital. It's, okay. it's, it looks like it's brand new. I, I pretty much can sell them there. Also, people are looking for opportunities. So looking for mm. someone who is hungry to, you know, get that next opportunity. And that usually is what it takes to recruit someone just like myself. Yeah, totally. You know, looking for someone who's going to give me the chance to do what I know I can do. Interesting. All right. And do you sell them on lifestyle? Do you sell them on cost of living? Do you? Oh, that's good. So lifestyle, people who live here like to hike, like to camp. So yes, if that's what they're into. Me in particular, that would not have sold me. <laughs> <laughs> you're, not out, you're not out four wheeling and fishing? No. No, but it's a cute little town. I mean, literally, as I was driving to work today, one of the police waved at me. You know, it's like, I know the sheriff. I know the captain of the police. Like, we all know each other. That's nice. Uh, so it's just, it's a really a great place to live. If you just, I thought I was going to take it easy when I moved here. No, 
I've been busier working here than I have when I was responsible for two hospitals. There's just no such thing. How did you tell us what you're starting when you when you kind of came in as the COO? Um, how did you get kind of your feet wet? How did you what what were you doing in your first 30, 60, 90 days? I mean, up until the COVID port where when everything shifted, how were you integrating yourself and getting to know the business and the people? So I have my hands full. I have a bunch of leaders who this is the only place that they've ever worked. Mm. So number one, sitting down with them. And I'm a very process focused person. So sitting down with them, going over what their current issues are, what their current challenges are. And it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty easy to quickly pick them up because a lot of times they just haven't put any formal processes in place. When you ask them why they do what they do, they don't have it. Or if, if you pull a policy, and, and I'm, this is one thing that I do at every organization that I go to. If you write a policy for me, I need to have references. Where, how did you determine that these are the steps that need to be taken in order for the proper outcome? And most people don't think like that. And so that's the first thing I do. I come in, I look at the policies and just go from there. Okay. And then how did you get to know them? How did, and how did you get them to know you? Well, you know, I try to be a very open and upfront and um and just honest and and i honestly I, I really don't know any other way to be if someone's doing a great job then i'll tell them they're doing a great job if someone's having some challenges then we need to sit down and talk about expectations and i always like to give them an opportunity to turn things around so let's say for instance i come in because I've come into situations where it's like, yeah, half of my leaders, they need to resign or be let go. And so, of course, you don't come in with that attitude, but you come in like, all right, well, so let, let's see what we have here. And, and let's set these expectations. And then if I see they're struggling, then I will try and help and walk them along on how to get things done differently. Because a lot of times, if they've never worked anywhere else, they just don't know another way. And so sometimes they need someone to, to walk them through the steps, to give them more direction. Mm. And then there are some leaders, eh, they got this. They got that. You know, it's, it's just so similar to being a parent in that you just, you don't need to do, th- you know, 360 feedback and quarterly reviews. You just tell people they're doing great and you tell them where they need to improve and you treat them like humans and you, That's it's right. pretty simple, right? Leadership is so much simpler than we, we, we make it. And I always say, if you, if you just hold people accountable to do the job they were hired to do, mm. they're either going to improve performance or they're going to self-select out. Yeah, the self-select out part is interesting too. Where have you struggled in your role as a, as a, a leader, as a COO? Oh, wow. So... What have you had to work on yourself? Let's say, whenever you're coming into a new role, there is a culture there. Mm. and and. In rural hospitals, it's always very delicate. You have to come in and you really have to just sit back and observe and try and understand what the culture is. And so coming into this culture here, one of the things that I had to learn to do was to, if I know the answer at the beginning of the meeting, don't necessarily put it out there. (laughs) Wait, let things progress. 
and then at the end of the meeting say, well, you know, and then deliver. And, and because my boss said, you know, you, you, right at the beginning of the meeting, you didn't give them a chance to, you know, state their case or this or that. You just, and I guess I'm a bottom line up front type person. Mm. And so a lot of times in the smaller communities, that's not well received. So I would say, again, softening my approach, taking a different approach. And I always like to start by asking the question. That's a strategy I've always used. I already know the answer or think I know the answer. So I will just start to ask questions until either one, it reveals what I thought, or number two, maybe it surprises me and the answer is a bit different than what I expected. Well, what, what you just touched on there is something I've been talking about for years now is that the leader's job is to grow people, not to give all the answers, right? And if our job is to grow their skills and their confidence, if we're always speaking first, we're never giving them a chance to give their answer. And half the time their answer is the right one or the one we would have selected. Or as you said, it's another one that's like, yeah, that's pretty damn good too. And which, yeah. which raises their skills and raises their confidence, right? So it's, it's our job to speak last at every meeting and last in every, which is tough to do when we're, when we're going fast. Right. Um, so you've had to work on that. What are you working on now with your skills? Is there anything that you're, you know, working on learning, thinking about to grow? Yeah, so at the beginning of COVID, uh, this year, so every year I plan continuing education for myself. And I decided that I wanted to do the public leadership certification through the Harvard Kennedy School. And I started the class right in January or so, and then COVID hit and then I stopped. And so now I'm getting back into that, getting that formal certification, working on policy. I feel as much as I don't really enjoy politics, it's just you have to get involved in politics if you want to ever see any true change. True change, yeah. Yeah. Good for you. That's a lot of work. Yeah, it is. Um, all right. In terms of, of growing people, how do you grow the people in the organization? How are you growing your direct reports? Ooh, so what I really love to do, so I'm a board-certified healthcare executive through the American College of Healthcare Executives. And so typically when you go into smaller organizations, you're dealing with leaders that have had no formal management training. And so in the past, what I have done was just to take it upon myself to sit down with my leaders once a month and go through those core competencies of a healthcare executive. What are they? Oh, well, just going over human resources, finance, you know, all of those areas uh, that we all kind of need to know so that we can be successful. And I find that a lot of people just really don't ever get that formal education. Mm -hmm. And so I start to try and, and deliver that. Now, I haven't really had a chance to do that in the formal way that I like to because of COVID, because I don't want to push them over the edge. I mean, I have leaders who feel as if they're drowning. And so just trying to slowly ease into that now or trying to take little snippets of it. So there was the situation that came up and I realized, oh my gosh, our leaders don't understand FMLA, Family Medical Leave Act. And so just taking little snippets of that and providing that at the supervisor's meeting and just trying to hit the, the things that could cause vulnerability for the organization, trying to really teach them those basic things that every leader should know when you're managing other people. 
All right. There's a lot of complexity in that stuff too. There is. Yes. And so you got to start somewhere, right? You talked earlier about kind of being open and vulnerable or just being yourself as well as a leader. I think that probably gets even more magnified working in a small town environment where, you know, they see you out on a Saturday at the grocery store and they see you out, you know, at the, at a local event or the movie theater or whatever. It's almost like the social media fishbowl that you're, you're very open and vulnerable. How do you, any changes there that you've seen versus prior roles or prior cities? Well, I would say Louisiana probably taught me Mm. the most about being in a rural rural community where I would be at the grocery store and people would just walk up and hug me. (laughs) Yes, Shreveport. And just getting used to people who you may not know, but they feel like they know you. So they want to engage with you. And so, which is probably why I try to go to the grocery store early in the morning, because otherwise I would never get out of there. Right, right. <laughs> Especially when you're seeing people in scrubs all day and then you see them uh, in the grocery store and you're like, hey, I'm someone's on the anesthesiologist. It's like, oh, yes, I remember. You know, you usually see them all covered up, you know. And so, um, but really just that's what is important to people in, in small rural hospitals they want someone who wants to be a part of the community who goes to church every Sunday with them, who, you know, is at the local Walmart with them. Yeah. I grew up in a city that was a little bigger, not, not massive, but it was about 85,000 people. And I just remember, you know, every time I went to the grocery store bumping into someone and I did like it, there was a sense of community and familiarity and, and belonging. And um, that was really nice. And, And now when I'm in these big cities, I almost wonder, like, will I see someone in the grocery store today? You know, like hoping to bump into somebody in the grocery store today. So I I kind of would like that environment, I think, as well. But I, yeah, I get the point. I would probably be grocery shopping at 7 a.m. as well. (laughs) (laughs) Otherwise, it's hard to get out of there. But I do. I I always stop. I always take the time to engage with people. And so do you do you let your hair down and just be you? Or do you do you always have that professional Tiffany, your doctor Tiffany love on as well? No, people really like to see that vulnerable side. They like to feel like you're human and, you know, it, it, I, it is so what je- it is. Jeans and a t-shirt and a baseball cap and you can go out and grocery shop in a small town? Um, not quite. To, not quite. <laughs> you still watch that a little bit. It's, I still have to be careful with that. But. It's, it's really interesting because he, like on social media, I've, I've just decided years ago, I was just like, fuck it. I just, I can't. I need one place where I can just be me and it's, well, it's probably two now. It's probably Facebook and and Instagram where I'm just posting stuff and I'm like, I don't care. Like I just, I need to at some point be a human in this whole life that we're going through. And if I have to always have this persona on, you know, like my website version of me all the time, I, I just don't want that. Like I just, you know, I've got a woman who works for me in social media. She's like, you can't post that. I'm like, yeah, you know what? I can, I need to. With COVID, I have actually posted some very personal posts. Uh, Mm. Since I've been living here uh, in Nevada, I have been struggling with altitude sickness where my oxygen drops down to like 93 or 90. And when it first happened to me, I thought I had COVID. (laughs) Because I had been exposed to a colleague who had it. And when I went to go get my COVID test, they checked my oxygen and it was only 93%. And I was like mortified. I thought, oh my God, I'm dying. 
And uh, then I had to be quarantined for like two weeks or a week. And, um, you know, my staff were so worried and wanting to come check on me and, you know, bring me like oxygen and whatnot. (laughs) I'm going to be okay. (laughs) But I, but I did let, I, that's when I started to post more personal things on social media Yeah. because I have friends who I had just been with in January in New York and some of them had COVID and had overcome that. And so. People I think, need that intimacy when I you're think it's great. I, I think it's really great when, when leaders do. I had someone on our uh, on the Second in Command podcast a couple of weeks ago, Matt um, from Rippling, and mm-hmm. he was saying that he actually gives people his kind of operating manual for Matt, um, and, and he, he's got like a four or five page document that describes him as a human and as a leader so that they get to know this quirky dude who's going to be their COO, right? I'm like, wow, that's such yeah. a great idea. I'm just kind of throwing it all out there and just going, this is me. All right, Dr. Tiffany Love, final question. If you were going to go back to your 22-year-old self, you know, you're, you're graduating from nursing or you're just getting starting on your career, mm-hmm. what word of advice would you give yourself back then that you know to be true now but you wish you'd known when you were younger? Live a life of service. I would say when I am giving, when I am doing for others, when I'm mentoring and sponsoring, that is when I feel most alive. That is when I feel most happy is when I'm doing something for someone else and I can see the benefit to their life. That's really beautiful. That's priceless. That's really beautiful. I think you're you're the first person and I've had 120 guests on the show and that's the first one that's ever come across as as that service and for others. And um, that's really nice. Yeah. I mean, it's just amazing to see how people can grow when you just give them a little support. But it also just makes you feel good when you're doing it, right? Yes, it does. Dr. Tiffany Love, the Chief Operating Officer from Humboldt General Hospital in Nevada. Thank you so much for sharing with us on the Second Command Podcast. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Second in Command. Brought to you by COO Alliance founder, Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to us on Himalaya for access to our premium content. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.